If you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 13 with me. This morning, Luke chapter 13. After having a few weeks off, we're returning to our series of the Gospel of Luke. And you will remember, as the name heavily implies, it was written by a man named Luke. But this message by him is not something that he invented. It is, it is not Luke's gospel, but the gospel according to Luke. In other words, there's only one true gospel message, and this is Luke's account of it. Furthermore, you will remember that he is writing to a man named Theophilus, who was an influential Roman official who had believed in Jesus. He had become a Christian, and now Luke is writing to him to assure him that the things that he has believed are, in fact, true. He is writing to show them that there are eyewitnesses that bear testimony, who are even alive in his day, that can say all of these things happened that Jesus was the very Son of God who came not just for the salvation of the Jews, but for the salvation of all sinners who will turn to faith in Christ. And arriving at chapter 13, we come at the end of a block of teaching whereby Jesus is explaining the nature of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that He has brought about by His own coming. And if you can remember to about a month ago, you'll remember that Jesus had explained what the coming of the kingdom would be like. Then he explained what the nature of the kingdom is like. And now, as we will see at the prompting of a question, he explains how we can enter God's kingdom. And that's what we want to think about this morning. How is it that one can enter God's kingdom? That one who does not deserve the kingdom, one who cannot earn the kingdom, one who is by default shut out from the kingdom can come to enter into God's kingdom. That's what Jesus explains to us through his word this morning. So let me invite you to look again, Luke chapter 13, follow along as I begin reading at verse 22. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying through Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and the knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil." In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. The people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he 
who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. Hear it this morning. Everything in these verses is pointing us to the door of salvation. This concept, this idea of a door by which you enter into the kingdom of God and enjoy the salvation that He has given. And it's essential for us to understand the nature of this door. What is this door like? And so that's what we want to spend the next several minutes thinking about. First, we see that there is a narrow door of, of salvation. There is a narrow door of salvation. Luke says that Jesus went on his way to the towns and villages, teaching, journeying through Jerusalem, and someone comes to him and he asks this question, Lord, will, there, will those who are saved be few? Now, we have no idea if this man is trying to catch out Jesus with a trick question or if he's worried that he himself won't make it. Either way, the question is an urgent one. But Jesus' answer is even more urgent. Rather than answer the question directly, notice what he does. He turns it back to the crowds. Someone comes and says, will there only be a few people who are saved? And Jesus says, great question, but it's not the most important question. The most important question is not whether or not there will be lots of people or few people, but whether or not you will be among them. That's the most important question that must be asked and answered. And so he says to them, you strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus explains the door of salvation is narrow because it points to an exclusive salvation. It points to an exclusive salvation. We need to be clear here that when Jesus is talking about the door, when he is talking about Christianity, when he's talking about God's kingdom, he, he's talking about something that is of an essential eternal matter. He's not talking about something that's just a social club or something that's, that's a mere tradition. He is talking about one's eternal destiny. I was listening to a report here recently about uh, how shocking it was that Hillary Clinton did not reference God on her Twitter profile. Why was that so shocking? Because no one has been ever elected president in this country who has not in some way made God a reference in their pl party platform. But the reality is, it's just words for most of them. It's just words. It's empty rhetoric that means nothing to them. It is only seen as a political advantage. God is just traditional. I, I have no doubt in my mind people say, well, Barack Obama's a Muslim. Or, no, no. I have no doubt in my mind the man's an atheist by the way he lives his life and the policies that he has. He talks about Christianity. He went to a church that claims to be a Christian church but is by far clearly a non-Christian church, just Christian in name only, has no real belief in the gospel of Christ, and therefore we should pray for him. We should pray that he comes to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we should not mistake ourselves that church and Christianity is just a tradition that we should be a part of. That's not the message of Jesus Christ. That, that is not what he is talking about. Even in the midst of his conversation, this man knows this is about salvation. This is about eternal destination. That is why he asked the question, how many will be saved? Will it only be a few? So for us today, the most important question we can imagine is this, where will you spend your eternity after you die? What will happen to your soul when you pass from this world into the one beyond? Will you be safe in heaven with God or will you be cast off from him without help for all eternity? 
There cannot be a more important question than this. Our lives are so often gripped and consumed by so many things that, are, that, that appear to be right in our face, front burner issues, but this question of our eternal destiny overrides them all. It overrides them all. We can either go through the narrow door of Christ or not be saved at all. That's what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus' message, and therefore Christianity's message, is not about pluralism. It's not a message that says all the religions are the same, that religion doesn't really matter, it's just talking about the same things with different words. No, Jesus says there will be people who are excluded. There are those who are in and there are those who are out. It's not just all going to the same party. Moreover, the message of Jesus and therefore the message of Christianity is not one about universalism. It's not one that says everybody's going to get to heaven. That there is a narrow door, Jesus says, and some will be locked out. In fact, he says many will strive to enter and fail. There will be people in hell, according to Jesus. Now, that's not a popular message today, although I say that I'm not sure it's ever been a popular message to look at someone and say, you're either in heaven or you're in hell and there's no in between. But this is the message that Jesus is preaching. So when so-called Christians claim the opposite, you understand that they are they are disagreeing with Jesus Christ. And it would be a far easier thing than to say there's no hell, there's no exclusivity to the gospel. You could be a Buddhist, you could be a Muslim, you could be a Hindu. We're all going to make it in the end. It's okay. It's just formalism, traditionalism. That makes it easier for our life today. That wins us friends and popularity contests, but it puts us at odds with Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, who is pictured at the end of the Bible as a conquering king with a sword that is coming out of his mouth who will leave vast amounts of humanity dead at his feet because they have rejected his word. I do not want to be standing against him in this life or the next. It is nice to have a fairy tale ending to a book or a movie where everything turns out fine in the end, but the reality is you don't want that kind of world. At least I don't think you do. You don't want a kind of world where someone like Hitler goes to heaven. You don't want a kind of world where someone like Pol Pot or Stalin goes to heaven or Jeffrey Dahmer goes to heaven, assuming that they've not repented of sins in this life, but they have gone to their grave being the mass murderers, the, the vile, disgusting people that they are, and God just says, oh, it's okay, everybody's okay. I don't want to live in that kind of world. That is not a world of justice, and most of us want justice as long as it's not for us. We want justice as long as we're not the ones paying the price. And yet Jesus says, everyone, everyone must go through the narrow, exclusive door that God offers or they will not be saved. And that, that exclusive salvation is seen because of the narrowness of an essential striving. An essential striving. Some will say, well, yeah, Jesus is the way of salvation, but all will enter through that door. No, Jesus makes it clear that something must happen in us, through us, in order for us to enter through that door. He says, strive to enter through the door. Now, here's the, the kind of catch. Jesus doesn't actually say here, Luke doesn't record what, if Jesus explained, what it means to strive. He says we have to strive to enter the door, but how do we do that? He doesn't tell us here, but that's okay because Jesus has been telling us from day one of his ministry. He's told us even in the earlier chapters of this book that Luke has given to us, the first essential component we see just a few verses up at the beginning of chapter 13, an essential component of striving to enter the kingdom is repentance. 
is repentance. We must repent in order to enter through the narrow door of salvation. As we said several weeks ago, true repentance begins by being sorrowful that we have offended God by our sin. Moreover, it involves a turning away from sin. It is not just saying, yeah, I did a bad thing. I'm moving on. It's saying, I did this terribly offensive, ugly thing before God, and I don't want to ever do it again. I might, but it's not my desire. I want to turn away from this thing and have nothing more to do with it. That's the first essential part of our striving repentance. But then secondly, Jesus says we must also believe. We must repent and believe. We must have faith. And Jesus makes that clear in chapter 8 of his gospel where he talks about a parable of the word of God being sown like seed. And over and over again, he says, it's those who hear the word, who hear the promise and believe, they are the ones who enter into salvation. Now, when we look biblically, these things, repentance and faith, are really two sides of the same coin. You never have one without the other in any true sense. Someone can be sorry they sinned, but if it's not accompanied by faith, it's not true repentance. Furthermore, you never have someone believing unless they first dealt with their sin, unless they first turned away from sin, because turning away from sin means what? Turning towards God. And so this is what Jesus means for us to understand, I believe, the striving by which we enter through the narrow door is this, repentance and faith. And they say, John, that's very interesting. It sounds plausible, but how do we really know that's what Jesus meant? Well, let's go to Mark chapter 1 and hear this, that when Jesus begins his ministry, his first, the first thing that he preaches and the message he continues to preach is this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. There it is, repent and believe the gospel. That is how we strive to enter this narrow door, this singular way of salvation with God. Salvation that Jesus preaches that the Bible explains is not just one of a narrow door, but secondly, we also see there is a closing door to salvation. There's a narrow door and there is a closing door to salvation. Jesus says in verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us and he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. In the context of this parable, God is the master rising to close the door. It is pictured as being nighttime and the gates are being shut at the house lest a thief or a robber come in. The master himself rises up on his way to rest and closes the gate. And Jesus is telling us that God has set a limit on the course of this world. We, we, we do not actively plan our lives that way necessarily. We don't say, well, you know, day's coming. I'm just going to quit my job. We're just going to put up some canned goods, go live out in the woods, and God will be back any day now. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to engage the world, to live our lives productively until He returns. But there is a time in which He will return. The gate, the door will be closed. All the more immediately, there is a door closing on our very lives. We, we, we will not live forever. Just yesterday driving home, I was listening to NPR and they were talking about this study they had done uh, with these worms that live 14 days. That, that's their entire lifespan. And they, they found there's only 20,000 genes. So they began tweaking these genes and basically discovered that uh, there is a death gene, there is a youth gene, and there is a, uh, a procreation gene. 
And if they turn off the procreation gene and they turn up the youth gene and they shut down the death gene, they can extend the life of this worm sixfold. For us, that would mean living 500 years. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. You're still going to die one day. Even the oldest living man recorded in the Bible, Methuselah, 900 and something years old, he still died one day. You, you may get through medical advances over the coming years much more time than people of previous generations, but you're still going to die one day. And when that day comes, there's no second chances. There's no third chances. God gave you all the chances and more than you deserve in this life. When the door closes at the end of your life, it will be closed forever. The door of salvation is narrow, but it's also closing. Time is limited. And two weeks ago, we said as God's people, that thought should propel us out into the world, fearlessly and sacrificially telling people about Christ. But on a more personal level, as the emphasis here is in this passage, you've got to be asking yourself, when is my door going to close and will I have passed through it first? I need to make sure I have entered through the narrow door of salvation, that I have entered into the forgiveness that God offers in Christ, lest the door close and I be found on the other side. Now, Jesus gives some examples here in this parable of people who thought, who thought they were going through the door, who thought they were already through the door, and yet they're shut out on the last day. And we need to be careful lest we be these people as well. Notice first, the door of salvation is closed to those who depend on religious activity. It is closed to those who depend on religious activity. The door closes, he says, and then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. These people had an association in the things of God. The, the eating and the drinking is, 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 is more than just uh, we had a meal together. It is we were involved in the work with you. We, 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 we had our lives intertwined with yours. We heard your teaching. But he says at the end, I don't know you. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know who you are. You've not entered into the gate. And I say this so often, but it's so essential for you to understand both in your own life and when you talk to friends and relatives and families when the subject of religion comes up. This is the one thing that, uh, among many that sets Christianity so clearly apart from the rest of the world. The narrow door of salvation is not what you do. Even the striving that Jesus says must be done is a striving that is enabled and empowered by God himself. No one repents and believes unless God grants it to him. And so here we need to understand that we cannot ever even depend on the religious activity of being involved in a local church to get us to heaven. It is no guarantee of our salvation. Jesus is talking to his fellow Jews who believe they were loving God, who believe they were serving God, and yet they are shut out of the gates of heaven itself. On the final day, they're saying to him things like, look at all the ministry that we did for you and with you. Look at all the classes that we taught. Look at all the petitions we signed. Look at all the goods that we donated. Look at all the prayer services we attended. Look at all the, the Bible studies that we were a part of. Look at all the money we gave. And Jesus says, if you are depending upon that to get you through the door of salvation... You have no hope. 
you have no hope whatsoever because God's going to say, I don't know where you're coming from. I, I don't know where you're going. I, I, I don't know you. So the door of salvation is closed to all who would claim, all, Jew, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever, anyone who believes they are saved by the religious activities that they do, Jesus disagrees. If they are dependent upon their religious performance, their good deeds, their moral superiority, Jesus says you will be found in hell on the last day because that is not how you enter into the narrow door of salvation. It will be closed to you. Secondly, Jesus says the door of salvation will be closed to those who depend on righteous ancestors. It will be closed to those who depend on righteous ancestors. This is not explicitly said here, but Jesus says it it elsewhere, and I think he's implying it in verses 28 and 29. He says, In that place that is the place where those who are shut out of the kingdom are cast, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. See, many of the Jews believed that they were going to be saved simply because of the fact they were descendants of Abraham. You see, you need to understand that that very often we we misunderstand the Pharisees and think they're they're all law, they're all legalists, they don't have any idea about grace. But this is not true. They, They knew about God's grace. They loved God's grace. They believed in God's grace. They depended upon grace. Their problem was grace plus works. That was their problem. And so they rejoiced the fact that they were graciously born into the covenant people of God, that they were descendants of Abraham, that they were the recipients of the law and the mighty works of God, but they wrongly believed that their righteous heritage alone would make them acceptable before him. Many people are like that today. Many people believe that because their parents were Christians, because they grew up in the church because they have this heritage of faith that precedes them, that they are okay with God. But you need to understand, Jesus doesn't care who your parents were. Jesus doesn't care who your grandparents were. Jesus doesn't care what church you attended when you were young, where you were baptized, who baptized you. The most insane thing I've ever heard of in my life, not the most, but one of them, is people who take a trip to Israel and are re-baptized in the Jordan River as if somehow that's going to give them more cachet with God. Who cares? Lots of people that were baptized in the Jordan River are now dead and in hell because they didn't trust in Jesus to get them to God. They trusted in foolish things like that. Our religious pedigree does not matter when it comes to our salvation. It doesn't matter to Jesus. He says, he says listen, those who are last will be first And those that are first will be last. Jesus says, regardless of the kind of reputation you have in this life for being a spiritual person, having the appearance of godliness, God knows the heart. And the reality is simple. You as an individual must come to terms with him on your own or else the door of salvation will be closed to you. You cannot depend on on any associations with righteous people to make you right with God. You must be right with him by entering in through the narrow door that Jesus has provided. 
We've seen that Jesus preached a narrow message of salvation. It was not just, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay, and we're going to make it one day. That's not the message that he preached. He said, to be right with God, one must strive to enter through the narrow door that would exclude many. And he said that God's patience would not last forever. The door of salvation is a closing door. But as true as those things are, we must not miss the rest of the passage. The door of salvation is a narrow door. It is a closing door. But at this moment, it is also an open door. There is an open door of salvation today. Listen again to what Jesus says. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And they said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and before cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. Now this man, is he friend or foe? Is he someone warning Jesus or simply trying to drive him away because he doesn't like what he's teaching? Commentaries are divided. The reality is we don't know. Regardless, this man sets the scene for Jesus to show what kind of Savior he is. Herod's going to kill you. Jesus says, I could care less. I am here. I have a job to do. And in doing that job, Jesus shows himself to be a Savior who is confident in God's power. Who is confident in God's power. Jesus not only knows why he has come, but the way in which he's going to accomplish the salvation that he's come to bring. It is through the very power of God in his life and ministry. He is confident that he has work to do and that God will strengthen him, empower him to do that work. You need to understand that when Jesus did miracles, when he did healings, when he, he put out signs of the supernatural nature, he was doing so to authenticate the message that he was preaching. They were never just for their own sake. It was to show God is with me. God's powerful hand of mighty salvation is upon me. Therefore, you should listen to the message that I am preaching you, a message of salvation, for it is also coming from God by his power. The same thing is true today. We should think about what Jesus said and did and see the power of God for salvation there. Today, when we think about being saved and coming to Jesus, there is no reason, no reason that anyone should feel I am beyond hope of God saving me. I am beyond hope of forgiveness. Nor should we look to others around us and say they are beyond hope. I, I know for a fact earlier, some of you, thankfully you didn't do it out loud as a discouragement to me or those around you, but in, in your mind's eye, in your heart of hearts, you snickered when I said, pray for Barack Obama to be saved. Either because you don't, you don't like him, you don't want him to be saved, or you thought, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. But remember, salvation is not dependent upon us. Salvation is not dependent upon what we do. Salvation is dependent upon the power of God, and therefore, nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is impossible. No one is beyond his reach. And all of this, as I'm thinking about this sermon and thinking about having visited my aunt who is dying of cancer right now, all of this came home to me in a very powerful way because if you'd asked me six months ago, what's the likelihood that she's going to get saved? I would have said, there's no likelihood that I can see. I, 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 don't, I don't ever see her being saved. And yet just, just in the last two weeks, it seems obvious that she's put her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, now how did that happen? How did that happen? Well, I'll tell you how it happened. It was through God giving her cancer again. 
That's how he did it. That's how he did it. You see, it was by his providential hand of this reoccurrence of cancer that she began thinking about that she may not survive this time. She's been through this once years ago, and she made it through. The cancer went into remission, and now she's thinking, I may not survive. So she goes over to her shelf and picks up a Bible and begins to read. Something that I, she's never done before, to my knowledge, since she was five in Sunday school. And God begins to speak to her. Then she goes into the hospital for treatment. And my family calls, well, some of my family anyway, and says, hey, send the chaplain to go see her. And so the chaplains go and they see her and they remind her of the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then she degenerates in her condition and goes into a hospice where God providentially leads a chaplain to go who is not of the ecumenical universalist type. I I can't say anything about Jesus. I'll just be with you. No, this individual shared the gospel clearly with my aunt, and it was through that sharing that God brought her to faith in Jesus. That same power that Jesus revealed through his healings is seen in the salvation of a sinner. It is no less miraculous for a lame man to be able to walk again than for a woman blinded by sin for 60 years to suddenly experience a new spiritual birth because God's Spirit regenerated her, granting her repentance and faith through hearing the gospel. They are both miracles empowered by God Himself. That's what Jesus knew. That's why he continued on to the cross. He was confident in God's power to accomplish salvation and to save, and so should we. Because he was confident in God's power, secondly, Jesus was a Savior who was committed to God's plan. Jesus is a Savior who was committed to God's plan. Look at verse 33. Herod is going to kill you. Nevertheless, he says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is kind of taking a swipe at his own people here. You need to understand, Jerusalem was the capital of the nation of Israel. They should have embraced the message of the prophets historically. You go back and read the Old Testament, and they they begin to stop obeying the law. God saved them. He's loved them. Because they're his people, he says, now obey my law. Show, Show the fact that you've been saved, you've been redeemed by your obedience, and they fail. So God says, look, you know judgment will come if you don't repent and believe and obey. And so he sends these prophets he's over and over again, but the people do not like to be told they're sinners. And so they reject the message of the prophets. Some are even killed. Jeremiah is thrown in a pit. Isaiah the prophet is sawn in two. What Jesus is saying is nothing's changed. That, that, that the very capital of my people, Jerusalem, what should have been the seat of godliness that welcomed the prophets and helped to proclaim their message from God instead ridiculed and killed the prophets. And then he says, I have to go because it's unthinkable that a prophet would die not in anywhere but Jerusalem. Notice he says, I have this work that must be completed. It's going to terminate in my death in Jerusalem. I have work that must be done today, tomorrow, and then he says on the third day, I will finish my course. The work will be done. He is very subtly pointing forward to the fact that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, it is there that he pours out his life for sinners on the cross, but he does not stay dead. For his faithfulness, for his obedience to God, and being a substitute for sinners and bearing wrath they deserve, God is well pleased and raises him up from the dead. 
And Jesus, even in the face of death, is committed to that plan because he knows that there needs to be an open door of salvation whereby all may enter in. Finally, we see that we have the hope of an open door of salvation because we have a Savior who is compassionate towards God's enemies. We have a Savior who is compassionate towards God's enemies. Verse 34, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those words are nothing less than astonishing to me. Jesus looks to his destination. He knows what will happen. He sees the rebellious hearts that have unchanged, though God's grace has been poured out generation after generation. He says, even though I should come and I should be welcomed as your Messiah, I should receive the worship and adulation that I deserve. I should be crowned as king. You will kill me. You'll hand me over to the Romans and I will die a most ignoble death. And yet, what does he say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how I would have loved to have gathered you up around myself and shown my affection for you, just as a hen gathers her chicks. These are the people that are going to be beating him and yelling, crucify him, crucify him, but he still has compassion on them. He, 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 he still wants them. He wishes that they could have been saved. And so I, I want to correct what might perhaps be a misunderstanding about God. He, he does not take pleasure in the last day in shutting the door of salvation. He, he does not find great joy in casting people to hell. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You, you understand? He, God is not gleefully rubbing his hands o, o, over hell in the last day saying, look at all these people that, that I get to judge. No, Jesus looks out on those that would betray him, that will betray him and says, oh, how I wish they would have turned. Oh, how I wish that I could have gathered them together and they would have enjoyed my love. But notice what he says. You were not willing. Salvation and forgiveness and life was held out to you and in the hardness of your heart, you turned away. They refused to renounce their sin. They refused to believe the promises of Christ and be saved. Uh, let me just make this clear. God is never at fault when someone goes to hell. You understand that God does not ever send someone to hell. If someone is in hell, they have sent themselves there because of the wickedness and the hardness of their own hearts. God is not to blame for that. We are to blame for that. And so even, even now, just as Jesus was looking at to his people, so he's looking to people now. He's looking perhaps to some of you now. He's saying, come to me and find spiritual rest. Get, give up those, those broken wells that give you foul water that make you more thirsty and ultimately make you sick and die and come to me and find a fount of everlasting water that leads to life with God in satisfaction forever. Again, some of you are here and you think, well, well how could God ever want me? Remember these words. These are the people that are going to kill the very Son of God, and yet He is compassionate towards them, 
even his enemies. He will accept you if you repent and believe. And for those of you that have already repented and believed, for those of us here that are God's people who are Christians, we must remember this message that we have is not simply a message of condemnation. It's not just turn or burn. It is there is hope in Christ. Your your gospel preaching should be one dripping with hope and anticipation that they will turn from sin and experience eternal joy and life in Christ. There is an open door. It is narrow. It is closing. But now it is open. And in that way, though Christianity is the most exclusive religion, it is also the most inclusive religion. No one will be turned aside if they strive to enter through that door. There is, there is no one, young or old or black or white, male or female, Jew or Gentile, anybody can come and be saved. In verse 29, in fact, Jesus says, some of the children of Israel who, who should be a part of the kingdom will be cut off, but others will come and find fellowship at God's table. Those Gentiles who come from all over the world, they will come and join me on the last day. You cannot ever look at someone and say, you have no part in God's kingdom. Someone cannot look themselves in the mirror and say, you have no part in God's kingdom. No, today is the day of salvation. A narrow closing but open door stands ready for you to enter through repentance of sins and faith in Christ. Just a few months ago, a man named Mario Hernandez and his wife were planning to take a cruise to celebrate his retirement from government service. And when he went to go get a passport, he found out he wasn't even a citizen of the United States. His mother had brought him to the U.S. from Cuba when he was a child. They were allowed to stay here as refugees. He believed that his mom had filed the right paperwork and that he was a citizen. Had a social security number. He had served in the U.S. Army for three years. He had voted in every election since Carter. He had worked for government agencies in Florida and in D.C., including the Federal Bureau of Prisons, for 22 years from which he was retiring. He was a man who lived his entire life proud of his American citizenship, rejoicing in his American citizenship, and yet he was not really a citizen. The sadness of that story on a human level, given our immigration polities now, is staggering. And yet it points to a much more profound sadness of those who believe they are citizens of God's kingdom, and they are not. They have put false hope in the things they have done in this life, believing that is what will make them citizens of God's kingdom. They have put false hope believing that because their family members have been religious and and have talked of Jesus, that they too will be part of God's kingdom. Perhaps they even believe that because they have some sense of, some, some place of prominence among God's people, that they will be part of the kingdom. But Jesus says, unless you are entering through the narrow door of my son, Jesus Christ, you will be shut out on the last day. You will not be part of my family. You will not be part of my kingdom. You will know only my wrath in hell. And that should be incredibly sobering for us and cause us to ask this question of ourselves, where are we with God? Have we entered through that open narrow closing door is jesus our only hope or are we trusting in something else to make us right with god the door is closing and we dare not be caught on the other side as god's messengers we dare not compromise this message to make it more palatable more acceptable more fashionable 
because of the culture of our day? You, know, you must understand, this message will offend. You, you can be a pregnant woman and still be stoned for believing this message in another country. You, you, you can lose your job for believing this message. You may have to renounce your job and say, because the government's going to force me to do things that will go against my conscience and the commands of Christ, I must find something else to do in this country because of this message. But here's the thing. If you change this message, dear Christian, then you are not showing love to those around you, for there will be no other way that they may find forgiveness and salvation with God. This is the only way. This is the only message. Jesus is the only Savior. And therefore, we need to proclaim this exclusive door of salvation. Though there is a closing door, time is limited. We do not have forever. Though it is narrow, it is only by Christ himself. Today, there is yet a door that is wide open. And all who enter in will be saved. Father, we are so thankful for that truth. If we are at all aware of our sins, if we are at all aware of our failings, just as people in society, that's a staggering thought that you would save sinners like us. Father, none of us deserve the grace that you give to us. It is not owed to us. And yet, Father, there you are. Through your Son with arms wide open it, a wide open, compassionate towards even those that would crucify Him. Father, we are no different than them. It was for our sins that Jesus went to the cross. We crucified Christ, and yet He stands ready to receive and forgive. God, this morning may we be clear in our minds that we have looked to Him and Him alone for salvation. May we be clear that we have entered through that door and as God's people, as those who are in the kingdom, may we live out the virtues of that kingdom. May we proclaim the grace of that kingdom to those who are not. Father, encourage us with these things. Convict us of these things. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.